0: Welcome to The Porch. I'm Lindsay Bacardo, keynote speaker and virtual presenter for organizations who want to build strong, multi-generational teams. I believe that the modern day leader has a moral obligation to grow personally and lead others from a grounded and healthy and healed place. You're going to hear me bring on psychologists, neuroscience experts, storytellers, emotional intelligence researchers, really anything that helps a leader grow personally and ultimately impact the culture of their organization. This is where I bring my favorite thought leaders on these topics to teach and mentor us through our own growth. I'm so glad you're here and welcome to the porch. We are set, we are live on LinkedIn and Facebook and so many of you came to the studio today for the live recording, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to The Porch. I'm Lindsay Bacardo, keynote speaker and virtual presenter for organizations who want to build strong, heart-centered, multi-generational teams. And I believe that the modern-day leader has an obligation to grow personally and lead others from a grounded and healthy and healed place. So you're going to hear me bring on psychologists, neuroscience experts, medical doctors and authors storytellers emotional intelligence researchers really anything that helps you and i grow as leaders personally and ultimately impact the culture of the organizations that we work for this is where i bring on my favorite thought leaders i'm already getting the chills because i get to bring on dr rakel today i love his book he's the founder and director of the university of wisconsin integrative medicine program that's what he did and then he moved all the way to New Mexico. And he's now the professor and chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine. He's a regular speaker. He's a fantastic researcher, author and doctor. I'm so lucky to have you here. Thank you for coming, Dr. Rakhal.
1: Thanks, Lindsay. Great to be with you and uh, look forward to having a stimulating conversation.
0: Yes, yes. So I want to spend some time because you're a doctor, obviously, and I promise everyone we're not going to talk about COVID-19. I promise we're not going to do that. But I do want to talk about the medical research that you have done. That's wildly compelling. And then maybe we can zoom out and talk about big picture, how that impacts people who lead others when you're not in medicine. And you've got some great tips in your book too, about how to be present and how to physically communicate good intentions so I'd love to cover that. So, basically, welcome to the book club. We have the author, we are Lucky Ducks. Here we go. One of the my favorite things that you write about in your book is this this pillverse process mentality that we take on particularly in healthcare. We know that placebo has like a bad um vibe around it. People usually think like, "Oh, placebo is a bad thing." But you have a compelling conversation in your book about the power of the process that we bring patients through and the power of the placebo. Can you speak to that a little bit just to help us jump in and talk about how much our mind affects our healing?
1: Oh, yeah, it's, it's powerful. And, you know, we live in a, in a culture that uh, worships the golden calf, right? The, uh, we give all the power to the pill. And uh, that's, uh, according to a lot of good research, that's been somewhat misguided. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was in private practice in a little rural town in Idaho uh, if I had to pick one drug I thought worked better than anything I would have picked the Prozac or the
0: Zoloft
1: Mm -hmm. because people would come in uh, they would trust me they would tell me intimate stories and then I would give them an explanation for their suffering and I would tell them it's all because you don't have enough serotonin and then I would Back in the day, right on the prescription pad and ripped off 20 milligrams fluoxetine, which is mm-hmm. Prozac, and then you would hear the angels sing as I would <laughs> give, give that magic pill to the patient. And, but if you dive a little bit more into the research for mild to moderate depression, that pill versus the process of a caring human being works this much better than the caring human being. Most, that's wild the majority of the effect comes from a caring compassionate ceremony between two human beings who want a better outcome and but we give all the credit to the pill and uh that credit is misguided uh and in this day and age of of quick fixes and you know it for people over age 65 36.5 percent of americans are on five drugs or more And, uh, you know, that's dangerous because once we get to that number, we don't know of all the interactions. And one of the fathers of medicine, Sir William Osler, said it's the physician's duty to educate the masses not to take medicine.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: and so in order to do that, how do we facilitate self-healing mechanisms? Uh, How do we really encourage that healing from within so we don't need as many external fixes that also can cause harm or very expensive
0: And people don't want to be on a handful of pills. This is, I think this is so important to talk about. And I wonder how the medical community receives you when you show this data that, you know, it's really my intent as a doctor in our relationship that brings healing. And also obviously modern medicine is fantastic and saves lives as well, but you're really helping us see the importance of the human connection. How do you think that's received in with your colleagues? Are you the black sheep?
1: Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> um, but you know, we build the bridge of science, and and science right. is a great communicator, particularly in the area I practice in, which is all about scholarship and academia. So you know, if we show the science, it's hard to argue with with good scientific proof. Although in this day and age, plenty plenty of people try. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's how we build the the, the bridge, and um, once you develop that trust, and this is true, if you're teaching something, or if you're taking care of another human being, you need to build trust. Uh, once you have that foundation, uh, you can talk about a lot of, uh, unique things.
0: Can you share a little bit and you do in your book, you know, why does this matter to you? What got you hooked on being a full hearted doctor using your p- superpower of intellect and then the warmth of your character you know, you talk about how your parents influenced you and what sent you down this path as a doctor. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because your position is just so unique and I find it to be really touching. So can you just give us a little background on what makes you see the world this way?
1: Sure, I hope it's not unique. We're trying to teach this as, much as we can <laughs> to the future generations of health providers. Um, you know, when we don't have enough time to really connect with another human being in medicine, we prescribe more things and we order more tests. And that's why I, I'm, I love being a primary care physician uh, because those healing relationships over time give me insight into the context of the human being. So what type of person has a symptom or a disease rather than what disease or symptom does a person have? And when you sit with full attention uh, and with a sense of curiosity and compassion, Uh, the truth usually comes through. Mm. And when that happens, you don't need as many tests and you don't need as many drugs. And, you know, we live in a a capitalistic healthcare system that feeds off those other things, uh, those drugs and those procedures uh, that we're now trying to shift. And now with uh, hopefully the continuation of value-based care, which is more or less Obamacare is... How do we reward the outcomes we want to achieve? And if we really want health for each other, we have to sit and give that other human being our full attention and really understand the story beneath the symptom. Because a symptom is our body asking for some sort of change, and if we're too quick to silence that symptom with our technology, whether it be a drug or or a procedure, we miss out on the healing opportunity. Uh, we need to listen. Why? that person is having neck pain or why that, uh, that headache is happening at this time in their life. And, and that's fun. It's, it's like going to an Oscar-winning movie with every encounter because you just sit and you see that mystery and awe come forth. And at the end of that conscious listening, full heart as you call it, uh, the answer is usually there. And the patient with kind inquiry tells you what's wrong and how to treat it. And then both uh, that's such a rewarding process to be invited into.
0: I can see that you mentioned that in your book, that when you've done experiments where you are not compassionate, you're purposely seeing how your interplay with the client, with a patient changes the outcome. When you've done those experiments, you've said it's actually more tiring to be now that you've been, and you've lived into this wholehearted listening. It's actually harder and less human for you to be, have to go in and just see the person as a problem and fix the problem.
1: Yeah, it's really, and I think it's really at the root, Lindsay, of burnout in healthcare delivery, is that we, when we create barriers uh, Mm -hmm. that keep us from connecting to that human being, it hurts, it physically hurts. And yes, yeah, we did a, 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 Bruce Barrett was the primary investigator of a study of the common cold, and we wanted to see if uh, an enhanced versus a standard interaction with the patient would affect the duration of the common cold. And when we we, had, we pulled a little card before we go into the room to see the patient, and either said a standard or enhanced. Mm-hmm. And when it said standard, I had we actually took acting lessons. And when we pulled the standard card, that's kind of the good cop, bad cop. So standard was the bad cop, enhanced was the good cop, but yep. we we couldn't get good cop and bad cop through the... Uh, <laughs> ethics and research. So we had to call it a, a, a standard and enhanced. And when we pulled the, the um, standard or the bad cop, we actually had to disconnect from that human being. You know, mm-hmm. we couldn't look at them. We couldn't form that therapeutic connection. We kept the visit very short, averaged, I think, three and a half minutes. Uh, and when we left the room, it physically hurt to not connect uh, to uh, someone who is there to ask for help or, or guidance. And it was so much more rewarding when we pulled the enhanced card, which we really stacked the deck in favor of those things that really enhanced the therapeutic relationship, like uh, empathy and, and um uh, listening and and creating a plan together and really using all those nonverbal cues to really connect. Mm-hmm. So the difference between those two models of care was connect or disconnect. And one of the my favorite definitions of hell is hell is a place where nothing connects to nothing. Yes. <laughs> and and uh you know whatever profession you're in the joy of that profession is connecting deeply with other human beings because that's we can talk if you like about the difference between empathy and compassion yes, both exactly. really good things but uh compassion requires us to have this interconnectedness
0: mm-hmm. i love that i would love to talk about compassion and empathy i found your descriptions of them to be helpful when I would walk into a room and decide which way are we going here? Am I going compassion or empathy? Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, and you know, I don't want us to think that one is right and the other is wrong, right? They're they're both very good, right? That's right. Um, And (laughs) there is empathy fatigue or uh, empathy distress. And uh, I would argue that there's no such thing as compassion fatigue or compassion distress. Uh empathy, by definition, means that we feel the person's story, we feel their suffering, we feel their joy. Um, and uh, then we repeat it back to them so they know they were listened, so they know they were heard. And then the third is we put action to it. And that's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is we feel their story and go home. There's no action. Yep. Uh, empathy requires some sort of action. So I feel your suffering. Now I got to do something about it. Now Dave has to do something about Lindsay's suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, which assumes that we can fix that person, uh, which is a big, big assumption because I don't know how many are listening to this, have a loved one in their life and uh, have. I would hope everybody would raise their hand. And, and then the next question is, how many of you have tried to fix that person? And <laughs> yeah. I think we would all raise our hand. And then, yep. how did that go for you? <laughs> not so good. You know, generally. it's not
0: usually successful. Yeah, It's
1: not usually successful. So um, whether you're raising a child or leading a team or seeing a patient, these health and healing oriented strategies work for everything. And so empathy requires Dave and Lindsay to be two separate people. And it requires that when we, I'm separate and I'm quote the doctor, uh, I gotta do something to help you. And that, oh, it's so heavy. It's, Mm -hmm. and particularly if you have, you know, long haulers COVID or, uh, you know, uh, some of these diseases we don't know how to treat, don't do that to yourself. Why would you wanna carry around that weight with you? Whereas compassion, sees Lindsay and Dave as part of the same process that when I help Lindsay, mm-hmm. uh, I help myself and vice versa. And, um, and uh, boy, there's so much old wisdom. This isn't anything new, right? This is old wisdom uh, okay. um, that when you, you know, you help someone else, you help yourself, not because you're fixing, you're helping because you're serving, you're serving this interconnected, world where everything is interrelated. All living things are interconnected. That sounds a little fluffy and not scientific, but we have good science to show that. That's right. And, and, um, and look at how that makes you feel, that I'm not gonna fix Lindsay, right? I, I can't do that, but I can be here with Lindsay now and together over time, we can get to a better place, which will help Lindsay, which will help Dave and we both get into this therapeutic dance where we both benefit. And that's energizing, right? You never burn out with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't put it on my shoulders, that I gotta fix Lindsay. I can't fix Lindsay. Only Lindsay can fix Lindsay, right? I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a process, it's a therapeutic dance that is so much gratitude to be invited into that area of trust. And it's fun and it's exciting. And uh, I think the future of healthcare Requires humans to do more human things, and this is a good example. We're going to use it. Uh, you know, there's mm-hmm. such fascinating innovations coming out of of how we'll be able to put on a a shirt and monitor all our biorhythms and tell us, you know, what's going on. Uh, but humans are still going to need to do human things.
0: And that's what's interesting. You you brought this up in your book too. You know, we can have robotics, we can have artificial intelligence and maybe someday you won't have to memorize as much as a doctor. But right now, and as we move into this technological revolution, it sounds like you see the there's actually more need to be human. Doctors need more training and more expertise in how to connect with people. The robots are a great tool, the artificial intelligence, those are great tools, but they don't they do not completely replace this interaction between um, your patients.
1: Yeah, and um, you know we're seeing we're seeing a shift that um, the computers will do the easy things like a urinary tract infection. I mean that's pretty easy. And, and yeah, as a primary care physician, I'd always steal from the earache to give to the depression. Right, I'd always be happy. Okay, in and out of the earache. Okay, yes. I've got a little extra time for this person who's depressed. In the future, uh, the computer's going to do the earache and those simple things, uh, and and so that's going to free up our time to really dive deeper into complexity and context of people's lives. So, uh, and that 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 is a little bit more draining. You know, it's fun to work in a little procedure in there. Uh, yeah. So, you know, healthcare is changing, and it's going to be a really uh, interesting balance between IT and humanism
0: that is fascinating to think about and you brought this other piece up last time we chatted we talked about how my generation is looking for those quick hits at the doctor and we don't maintain long-term relationships with doctors and that these pieces are starting to come together for me i can see why for you in the position you're in you're thinking it's really much better to have a long-term relationship with a doctor and then Sometimes a robot will take care of your UTI or your ear infection, whatever it is. And then other times this same human is watching all these aspects of your life unfold and is able to strategically address them versus the good old millennial that just wants to go to the urgent care and get the amoxicillin and move on with my life. (laughs) That's so true.
1: That's why I like talking to you, Lindsay, because you're from a different generation than I And and that adds cognitive diversity, right? It allows Mm -hmm. us to learn from other people who see the world differently. And our younger generation sees the world differently. And um, if you look at some of the research, they don't really care so much about having a long-term relationship. They care about access and and, uh, tools uh, that will help them gain more control over their life. And tell me if I'm wrong, because uh, I might be projecting here, which is always dangerous. Uh, but what we're trying to do is create a package, you know, how to bring people into a package of care. So if you're, all you need is a computer, you can access the computer, but if you have to access the computer eight times for the same problem, maybe we should get you in to talk to a caring human being who has a relationship with you over time. And just like, I don't know if uh, listeners here, I remember cheers, but what happened when Norm went into the bar? Everybody said, Norm, right? Yeah. That's, that's the healthcare team of the future. It won't be restricted by the bottleneck of getting into BC one physician. It'll be how do we create an interprofessional team of mental mm-hmm. health providers, social workers, pharmacists, physicians, uh, clinicians of all types to really address the health needs of that unique person and the population health needs uh, that go beyond just the find it, fix it pill for every ill mentality that our healthcare system has been stuck in. And, and, you know, if you look at the data, we have a $4 trillion health system that doesn't produce health. That is a terrible investment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, So we need to figure out how to do this caring differently. Uh, because when we just wait for things to break and then try and fix it particularly after end organ damage has occurred we have to add one pill after another and pretty soon we have this polypharmacy uh
0: condition that no one wants Mhm. so that's i love thinking about that holistic person to your point and bringing in the right people to help at the right time and not just trying to pile on even like technology or antibiotics or medicine that really, when they compile, don't, serve the patient. That makes sense. And I think about that even in the business sense when we like come up with a bunch of tools and what everybody really needs is a stronger leader, (laughs) but like all these tools are spinning and trying to be more productive, but at the end of the day, maybe people don't feel like their leader has a vision for where they're going or even cares about them. I think about how so much of what you do um, easily translates into leadership. And even this underlying piece that you're talking about, of basically efficiency. It's more efficient to be compassionate and to be holistic towards somebody ultimately.
1: yeah,
0: But it's a long play, isn't it? It's a long play to to be patient and to want to do that.
1: I think so. And um, I think the point that you just made is what works for health and healing works for leadership. And, uh, you know, I have a a department of about Mm. 85 faculty and 35 staff and I'm their family physician, more or less. That's the way I like to look at it. And yes, uh, I have to uh, nip things in the bud. So if I see someone, you know, maybe looking a little sad on a Zoom call, you know, you have to observe that. You have to uh, see what's going on, and then reach out to them and say, "Hey, what's going on? Is there anything that we need to do?" Uh, because we really need this shift in, in healthcare. We've gone from pathogenesis, pathos to suffer, genesis, the creation of, to what we really want is salutogenesis, salute or salute health, the genesis of health. And the science of health is much different than the science of disease. We've gotten really good at the science of disease. Mm. We are terrible, I'll be frank, at the health, at the science of health. And that's what we need to start to pay for. We need to start to pay for keeping people Healthy and out of the hospital instead of just getting rewarded for acute and catastrophic care, which is way too late uh, in this process. But that's that's why I love about uh, leadership. The same things are true for patient care as they are for managing a team.
0: Hmm. Well said. What do you think it will take to switch the mentality to, you know, how do we create healthy people versus how do we deal with disease? What will it take? Payment, <laughs> <laughs> <Don't burn> cash.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's how the world works, right? We have to pay for Capital. what we want, and and right now we haven't done that. Other countries that have more socialized healthcare, where healthcare is a right for all human beings, have have a much more efficient healthcare system. But um, I read a book recently called Team Human, and uh, the author um, points out. Uh, about capitalism and healthcare is an oxymoron. And Mm -hmm. he he states that um, most true things in life occur in nature. And uh, you see it happen in nature, it usually works for everything else. And he said, the only example of capitalism in nature is cancer because capitalism needs unlimited resources to grow. And cancer requires a lot of energy to grow, uh, but it eventually kills the host. And I think uh, it's hard to have a true healthcare system in a capitalistic healthcare system. And uh, if we can really work towards paying for health, <laughs> then we're gonna shift the culture the fastest. And I'm optimistic that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid is starting to start to pay for health and, and healthy outcomes, which requires different people, different professions and a new science. And, and so that's why I'm really excited about uh, those payment structures, that are really allowing us to bring in different professionals, health coaches, one mm-hmm. of the fastest growing industries in medicine, uh, you know, I. My training probably, although I love it, probably shouldn't be to convince people to eat better and exercise more and forgive their neighbor. Another kind human being who's good at communication but doesn't have to go to school for a gazillion years is probably more efficient to really be with Mm -hmm. that person to help them sustain those health behaviors. Because health is much more about what we do than what we take by far. That's Mm -hmm. the main predictor of health outcomes is, is is human behavior, what you eat, uh, how much you exercise, how well you sleep, how well you forgive, how well you reduce <laughs> perception of stress in your life. Those are the main determinants of health.
0: That's so fascinating. You know, one of the things that you brought up that I wanted to touch on today is having health care. When you look at societies that have healthcare where it's a right for all, that plays out very differently than our capitalistic society. And obviously this year, racism has been highlighted in every area, in every industry of the world. And I'm curious, how do we learn from DEI and anti-racism to improve healthcare for all, for everyone?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Boy, really good question. That um, is complicated, right? Yes. Um, I, I think it all starts with kindness for every human being. Um, and, you know, we talk a little bit about this in the book. It's hard to do that if you live within your own implicit bias. So, the first step is for each of us to explore how our own mind has been conditioned. Um, that's right. And that's the first step. Otherwise, I'm just going to project my beliefs onto that other human being uh, inappropriately. Because right. if, if I don't explore my own implicit bias, I think everybody should think like I do. And, uh, you know, I, the ego really projects that well. And that leads to this dichotomy of us versus them and gets us out of this healing collaboration that we all need. And, and so there's different ways to communicate. I like to talk about monologue. Monologue is kind of what I'm doing now. I'm just doing a lot of talking, whereas I'd love to hear the wisdom from all your listeners. You know, that, <laughs> that's, that's different. Um, mm-hmm. But if we don't explore implicit bias, we get into duologue. Duologue is monologue waiting its turn. And have uh, mm-hmm. you ever caught yourself doing that where I just wish, or Lindsay might say something that triggers a story about myself that I wanna tell. And I'm, I, I wish Lindsay would just stop talking so I could tell my cool story. And that's yep. monologue waiting its turn, that's duologue. We don't really listen. We, we, we wait our turn to speak and rarely does anything good come out of that. Uh, where dialogue, dialogue means meaning running through, uh, where meaning runs through two people. And that is energizing. That's what gets on your neck to stand up. And, and, and so we need more of that. And that requires us to explore how I've been conditioned. So I'm careful not to project my beliefs onto someone else. I sit them with a sense of curiosity and respect for every human being to be perceived how they wanna be perceived. And then I use my talents and my education and my skills to help them get there. And that uh, is a different therapeutic ceremony than we've been doing in the past. But at this time, more than ever, we need to do that for every human being, no matter what they look like or
0: fill in the blank. Exactly. That's really well said, because this piece of awareness, it takes humility, doesn't it, to say, I do have a lens that drops down, that I see the world through, and we all do, and it doesn't make you a bad person, it's being aware of that and choosing instead to be open and curious. Yeah, I,
1: I'm curious, what you, how would you answer that question? You have a different perspective than I do.
0: (laughs) Well, I do. I think we go right into education a lot versus like that awareness piece and education is really important. And it does. When I talk about generations, there's a ton of bias around different generations and maybe just cognitive shortcuts about what we think about boomers and Gen Z's. And I think it's funny because it's much it's it doesn't have the same deep roots as racism does. So we can kind of laugh about it in a different way uh, for sure. But I think this idea, and we talk about this in the coaching world, whether you're a health coach or a career coach, whatever it is, I've got to be honest about what's happening inside of me and what's coming up for me in this moment, because I really can't dance with it until I'm willing to know what it is. And, you know, it takes silence and listening, really not cool stuff. You got to really be silent with yourself and still to get to that. And it's kind of that the quiet journey leads you to more discovery than I'm going to read 30 books about this. I'm going to, you know, there's probably a combination there. I've, every time I read a lot about generations, people ask me a ton of questions, but underneath all their questions is actually their bias coming to light, which Mm -hmm. is what I actually want to address and speak to versus like, well, in the 1950s, you know, the school system was different. So we're, that's interesting. But what's really interesting is how that impacts me and my own view of other human beings. So I think you're right on the mark. And obviously you play, you live in this every day. So you're in a, as a doctor and as somebody who wants to give the best high quality care, it makes sense that you start with free yourself of your biases, become aware of them. You know, a couple other things that you talked about in your book that are fascinating is this idea of how to physically communicate good intentions. So it's not just enough to say, okay, I'm checking myself before I walk in. Now I'm walking in. How do I let that other person know that they're safe and I want to listen? What would you tell people? Yeah,
1: this is one of my favorite uh, things to teach uh, is uh, most communication is nonverbal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's usually authenticity too, is your nonverbal. So if you're saying really kind things but not looking at the person or, or showing that with your body language, they know you're not really authentically kind. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. how the person treats the waiter at the restaurant. That's usually the authentic. Uh, That's right. Uh, self. Um, so I mean, there's a few things. Number one is we try and get on the same uh, altitude, right? <laughs> the same. You know, I, I teach our residents sit on the bed if you can. You know, even in COVID times, we're all gowned up, which is fine. You're not going to increase transmission if we're all gowned up. Get on the same on the same wavelength. John Kabat-Zinn, uh, one of the founders of mindfulness in America, uh, talks about uh, dropping in. So you mm. walk through the threshold to use that threshold of the doorway into that space of liminality. So I enter that threshold into this space of liminality. Liminality means a suspension where anything can happen. You're in the suspension, you can go this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. But that liminality, that suspension of two people defines the direction Mm. and that allows anything to happen. And you have to give permission for people to feel comfortable disclosing intimate details. So you have to really show that kindness, that eye contact, that little tilt to the left, being on the same uh, path, using opened uh, body language instead of uh, closed body language, being careful, not, you know, when you shake your hand, when we shake hands, it, it, it comes from us showing that we don't have weapons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, look, I'm not holding any any guns or knives, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you know how you shake that hand. If you turn over, that usually is a dominating. You know, I dominate you versus this is more submissive. So how do you how do you form that connection physically, uh, which unfortunately with COVID has been hard for us? But how do we uh, create that trust? And yes, um, how do you do that over a Zoom call? Right? It's it's exactly uh, not always easy. Some of my favorite ones are like the steeple sign. Usually if you sit like this, it means you have something that you want to say or it's kind of authoritarian, (laughs) uh, the steeple sign like this. Um, The uh, respiratory avoidance response is when I say something I'm not really comfortable with, I might rub my nose or cough. (laughs) I'm trying to clear that untruth from my respiratory tract. And sometimes you just have to cough, right? So this is all within the... (laughs) Uh,
0: Right. (laughs) Right.
1: But you know, if I if I ask a patient, hey, are you ready to stop smoking? <clears throat> yeah, I've never been more ready. You know, they're trying to clear something from their subconscious. Yeah. Uh, again, not 100% accurate, but that uh, is a useful non-verbal uh, 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 cue that really shares authenticity. But the most important thing is to show you care.
0: Mm-hmm. And out
1: of you know, I've been practicing medicine for 24 years, I think. I think the most important thing we can do is say, I believe in your healing capacity. And I don't have the, even if I don't have the answer now, I'm not going to desert you. I'm here with you. And we're going to find the answer together over time. And that's, that's why I love being a primary care physician. It's those long-term healing relationships that feed most of us.
0: I can see how important that is. And hearing that from you as a long-term care physician feels very different than I went into the local, you know, CVS, got the test. Okay, I'm going to try to get better. But it makes sense that you've mentioned this too. Over time, sometimes we can have several health issues and having one doctor have the whole picture is really important. And your belief that a patient can heal through this process, there there's so much power in that coming from you. What do you notice about a patient when you tell them that, when you tell them, I believe in your healing capacity, what do you notice about them?
1: Well, everybody wants to be noticed and recognized for their potential. And we all have this tremendous potential to heal if someone would just believe in them, uh, believe in that capacity. And that's so much more fun than just slapping a bunch of drugs on a human being. Uh, That's quicker, gets me onto my next patient quicker, but does it really serve their deepest need? You know, I'll give you an example. We have a condition that's very hard to treat in medicine called multiple chemical sensitivity, where the human being is sensitized to everything. You know, Mm -hmm. everything makes them cough or triggers an asthma attack or some sort of allergic reaction. And usually uh, in this pathogenic health system, you know, we try and find a drug for that. But there is no drug for that. You know, we can give steroids and antihistamines, but it's really... um, uh, frightening to that human being because they feel like they're losing control so we could go about it and saying hey you know i don't have a drug for you you're just gonna have to deal with it or we could say hey you know generally and this is true we see this multiple chemical sensitivity in, in very kind compassionate very sensitive human beings and sometimes that sensitivity gets turned way too high and we need to work on on turning down that sensitivity knob to a balance that allows you to continue to be you without reacting to everything in your environment. And then that human being sees their disease as a a gift, as, hey, I'm a very insensitive, intuitive human Mm -hmm. being, but it's gotten a little too much and I need to turn that down. How do we turn that down? We stimulate the parasympathetic relaxation nervous system through deep, slow breathing we improve their sleep, we reduce their inflammatory potential through their nutrition, there's a ton of things that we can do. But the most important thing is that we see their gifts, and then we believe in their ability to, to fulfill their
0: potential that we all have. That's incredible. That's incredible. And it makes perfect sense too. that, you know, you're just taking a pill for that isn't, touching the system of elements that are playing into each other that pushes somebody's sensitivity too high. I remember my therapist once said your smoke detector, if you're emotional smoke detector, you, you can detect somebody blowing out a candle and that's actually your superpower, but it's also your, you know, we've need to make sure that our superpower doesn't overtake us. And I never forgot that. Like, how do I turn my smoke detector less, sensitive so i can function and be in this world emotionally and intuitively
1: yeah yeah um there's a in healthcare we get burned out a lot because we give our heart a little too much sometimes mm-hmm. and, and another example of what you just said is um this was in my integrative medicine fellowship that we worked with different uh, alternative practitioners but one was a energy healer and a very gifted woman uh, who I learned a lot from. And she said, imagine you have this force field around you where you convey your kind heart, but it doesn't get drained from you. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so just that image of, of, okay, I can provide this kindness without depleting my soul. And how, how do you fill your own cup so you can keep filling others? Uh, Because we can't give it we don't have and we're our own first patient and that's what we tell our medical students and residents is you can't do this for anybody until you do it for yourself. So we always need to start here, we need to uh, be kind to ourselves not expect too much of ourselves explore our implicit bias and and recognize that so we don't project it to others, sit mindfully in full presence with another human being and then put action to the wisdom that comes from that suspension of liminality. And that never fails.
0: That is beautiful. I hope everybody's writing this down because I think, and we'll send out some notes later because that was so well said. And that can apply to anybody interacting with a human. You made a great point that every career is just a different type of interaction with other humans. That's right. So I can I can imagine if a and you gave this example in the book, like your manager walks down the hallway, you see them and you've got a physical, biological tag of stress, anxiety, something's gonna happen and all of a sudden my whole biology starts to shift and i wonder what would happen if leaders when they walk in the room if their team had a response of in their body oh this is going to be an open curious conversation i'm going to grow from this this person believes in believes in me and sees me that would change the entire trajectory of an organization
1: it would and lindsay i have a dream uh, <laughs> I want to hear it I have, a, I have a dream that anybody who's responsible for other human beings like a president of the United States is required to go through a self-reflective process where they understand how they've been conditioned where they have kind people who care about their best outcome so they don't live within their own ego so they truly can serve other human beings to the best of all outcomes uh, and and don't you think that'd be a good idea that anybody who's bills. responsible for large people populations should be required to do some of this self-work?
0: I 100% agree. We actually changed my tagline of this, this time to go, this porch luminous space, because, because I wanted to say the modern day leader really has an obligation to grow in this way. If you're interacting with other people, there's almost for me, a moral imperative that you are going to grow and be responsible for the way that you see the world, the way that we treat other people. I love how you said going through a self-reflective process because all emotional intelligence starts at self-awareness. So I think that's so powerful that you said that. I love this dream. I'm in, whatever you need, I'm in, I'm doing it. All right, cool. I'll, I'm right behind you <laughs> or next to you, whatever it takes. Yeah. That's beautiful and very powerful. I think sometimes we think of power and might like the power of, you know, all these things we've created in the world. And yet we're really saying we just need to go back to being human, to being aware of ourselves. I love how you said nature reflects truth so often because we see this all the time in nature that things change slowly, even trees respond to each other. You know, nature is completely interconnected and and we are too. And it's easy to lose sight of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure, that's, that's why. I mean, just going out and observing nature is one of the best teachers.
0: That's everybody. Put on your snow boots. You're up north. Let's get outside. I know we've got a couple questions. Would you mind taking a few questions and sure. then I may need to head out. You bet. you bet. For the day, one thing. Let me take one of these questions. How can do you believe truly in your guts that someone can be taught to be empathetic? <laughs> I do. Great. <laughs> and Excellent.
1: Not, and not everybody believes that. Uh, but it. I mean, there's a strategy. There's a curricula for it. And that curricula is very similar to what we've been talking about. Yep. First, we, we all need to pause and self-reflect. And we need to see how we've been conditioned. Uh, and, and, and then be able to put that aside uh, to practice mindfulness and go into that present moment with that other human being uh, and feel. And then, and only then, uh, can we really feel that empathy. We can Mm -hmm. really feel that, uh, what's going on. Uh, And then remember, don't own it. That's compassion, where you're not owning it, but you're realizing that we're interconnected to then use your talents, my talents, both talents to get to a a better uh, place Mm -hmm. in service of, of that outcome. But I do believe, actually, if you look at some of the research in Europe, they they hire acting coaches to teach empathy uh, to the medical students so they can act empathetic, which I don't like because it's not authentic, but it does work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to do something, at least act like it. <laughs> yeah, at
1: least act like it. It's still better than not. Uh, but wouldn't it be cool if it was authentic empathy, authentic compassion? You know, I think that would yes. really be the win. But yes, I, I believe you can teach it. Some are more gifted naturally at, at expressing it. But everybody can be taught uh, the art of of that communication style.
0: That's That's hopeful to hear because I think sometimes we get into this fixed mindset. I'm not that type of person. This person is born that way. I'm not. And we're talking about what I hear through everything that you're saying is you're opening the realm to another possibility, an entirely different way to interact that's more true to nature and to human nature than not.
1: Yes, and there, there's there's so many cool things in science. The study of epigenetics. When you decide to be different, when you su- decide, let's use forgiveness. I love forgiveness. Jack Cornfield said forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past, and I love that. Hey, I love, that love it. But if you decide to do that, where you let go of that suffering, uh, you don't forgive. For the other person, you forgive for yourself. You're releasing that. That actually influences the methylation, the signal of your genome that can be transmitted to future generations. So, so finding that sense of peace in your heart now may influence two generations from now uh, if you do it before you have a baby. Yeah, but sticking uh, people,
0: forgive everyone. (laughs)
1: That's right, the earlier the better, Uh, but it's so interesting to see how these things actually influence our genome. Look at how much COVID is mutating. You can see how RNA and DNA can change so quickly, it adapts to its environment. So when we believe that we can change significantly, and I've seen it happen, people change their diet, their disease Mm -hmm. goes away, they, they improve. They change jobs to reduce stress or whatever it is. Uh, It happens. Healing happens. But interesting, people forget. And they slowly return to their dysfunction. (laughs) (laughs) So so I, I always have people journal about their healing event because they'll forget. So they can look back and see what really helped six years ago when they had the flare of their disease and then it went away and then it slowly came back because people forget they always go back to what's comfortable and Mm -hmm. what's that old quote that people don't resist change as much as they resist being changed
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: uh no one wants to change they like to see it in others but it's hard
0: (laughs) isn't that the truth (laughs) So this act of forgiveness, I know some viewers were asking for you to elaborate on that because there's a conscious, you know, release, like you said, abandon all hope that there will be a better past. And it really is for yourself. The other person may or may not even have had the same experience as you. So it's kind of a moot point, whatever they, whatever they experience, But do you have any exercises? I know you said journaling. How would you encourage people to change their mind and choose to forgive when they've been in a situation that they just keep hoping will change in the past?
1: Hmm. There's, there's therapists who just focus on forgiveness. It's a, it's a complicated, it's a, it's yeah. a simple, it's a simple choice, but it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Cause it's that emotion mm-hmm. is so ingrained into our soul. Um, So yeah, um, one of my favorite quotes is, I like quotes as you might be able to tell. I love it. Uh, The the sorrow that hath no vent in tears may make other organs weep. So if we hold in negative energy, if we hold in negative emotions, it usually comes out in some dysfunctional way. So how do we provide a healthy avenue to express those emotions? So journaling is one, therapy, talking to another human being is another art. Mm
0: -hmm. All the
1: humanities is our, human ability to define the spirit uh so how do we express that uh in a in a way that gets it out of us uh Mm -hmm. it it gets it out there for us to let go of that weight why do you want to carry around that 300 pounds the rest of your life and again um it, it some people are are good at it they just make up their mind and a lot of the research on salutogenesis comes from the study of women who went through Jewish concentration camps in World War II, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: despite seeing and experiencing the most tragic thing one human could do to another, there were some people who forgave, and Mm -hmm. uh, they forgave the unforgivable. (laughs) Truly. Not for the people who did it, but for themselves, and they started to realize that (laughs) my life isn't going to be worth much if I carry this suffering around with me the next. The best way I can honor my loved ones who died in those concentration camps is to resonate the joy of of life. Mm -hmm. And if I I could define compassion in one sentence, it's giving life to life. Mm. That uh, life is too short. Uh, You get what you give, uh, and that to which we give attention grows. And that's right. Life to life is is so I mean, it's so rewarding. Uh, but we have to get out of our suffering. And that's hard if you were a sufferer of adverse childhood events, you know, yes. abuse as a child. That's really hard. You can't do that alone. You need other caring human people to get you through that.
0: I That is so important. That piece that you bring up again, coming back to connection that sometimes forgiveness often means bringing other people in your world a therapist somebody who's you know trained to walk through that with you there's real power in coming together so that we can overcome and forgive and release whatever we've been through in life and i know just spending time with you the two times i've been lucky enough to spend time with you who you are oozes out of you your your being your character your nature tells me that you were made to heal humans. So I just feel so lucky that I got to encounter you and I have your book and this interview to keep close as I continue to grow as a leader. And I know it means a lot to everyone here and everyone that will be listening to the podcast to hear this wisdom that you're pulling together in this day and age to help us continue to heal and grow. Thank you so much for your service to all of us, to humanity, and in this very unique and powerful way around compassion. Thank you for your time today.
1: Uh, Pleasure, Lindsay. I enjoyed it. We had fun.
0: Thank you so much. I'm going to let you go do all the other important things you have to do today. (laughs) Is there one message that you can give to us as we leave? What's one thing you would want us all to know as we head out into the world?
1: Uh, I'll just repeat, give life to life and have fun in the
0: process. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Rakel. It was a pleasure having you. I know everyone here is jumping on the chat and wanting to say thank you and just deep appreciation for you. So, thank you for your energy today. Thank you. Thanks, Lindsay. It was a pleasure. Have a Absolutely. good one. Absolutely. You too. Thanks, right. everybody, for coming on the porch. We'll see you again soon.